Amen. Well, when Brother Thompson was there preaching a couple of weeks ago when he said it did go up, Faith Promise did go up 75,000. And uh, he doesn't get all the credit. Brother Hoffmeister came in and preached on Friday. And it was a tremendous meeting, excellent meeting. And I appreciate Brother Thompson, appreciate his preaching. Of course, I appreciate Capital City Baptist Church. And uh, a few years back, a preacher friend of mine, a dear friend of mine, good friend as I've ever had, uh, he's 80-some years old. He stumbles and stutters and preaches like I do, forgets and repeats and all kinds of stuff. But he opened up some new ways of looking at the Bible for me. And he said, really, all doctrine is important. You've got to have proper doctrine. But you can have proper doctrine and not be right with God. But the principles behind the doctrine, if you read that, then you can live for God. There's a lot of people that know proper doctrine, but all they do is argue about it and debate somebody that doesn't believe right. And that's not, that's not the will of God. There's a principle behind the doctrine. So when I started looking for Bible principles, you know, it, it, it's, it's sad to say that after 75 years, you finally learn how to study the Bible. And in the last four or five years when I started looking for Bible principles, there's been more truth opened up for me that's practical, that applies, than I've ever seen in my life. And I mentioned a couple of things to Brother Adam when he was down in Florida. But uh, Capital City Baptist Church, to me, is a good example of a Bible principle that you can find in the second chapter of Genesis. And uh, I, didn't know, I didn't know the principle when I first started gardening but uh, I do garden. I enjoy gardening. Uh, but there's a principle in gardening. In fact, when you read the book of Genesis, one of the most phenomenal statements that you'll ever read is, and the Lord. That's pretty high, isn't it? Created man. That's pretty low. From the dust of the earth. And I heard a fellow preaching, and he used this title, When Deity Touched the Dirt. Well, that's got a thought behind it, doesn't it? And so if you take deity out of your life, you know what you are? You're just dirt. I'm just dirt. And you take God out, and you're just a piece of dirt. But when deity touches the dirt, he doesn't do it because of the quality of the dirt. You know. And uh, he touched the dirt. You know what he did for me about 60 years ago? Did he touch the dirt? <laughs> yeah. And you say, what happens when deity touches dirt? He breathed into his nostrils and man became a living soul. You get life. Did he touch dirt? And we, had, we got life. It's, it's on God's side. The life is on God's side is what he did. He touched the dirt. You begin to live. I used to hear Dr. Harold Seidler preach. And I heard him one time preaching from Ezekiel chapter 16. And the little girl that was born to the loathing of a person cast out at the open field and polluted in her own blood. And the Lord said, I saw thee polluted in thine own blood. And when I passed by, I said unto thee, live. And Dr. Seidler said, if God ever comes your way and says, live, you will never die. <laughs> Did he touch the dirt? Amen. And you know what? You got life. But not only did you get life, 
but you got a likeness. He said, let us make man in our image and our own likeness. So when deity touches dirt, he gets life and he gets a likeness. But he doesn't end there. He gets a labor. And he took that dirt that he touched and put it in a garden. And from that garden, there's a principle. In fact, I believe, and I didn't, I didn't carry it this far until Jacob, my grandson, was helping me a little bit. But I believe that every principle for life can be found in the principle of gardening. He said, well, what's in gardening? What is gardening? Proper gardening is cultivation. That's what you do when you plant a garden. You cultivate. You take a grain of corn and you get a crop of corn. I mean, whatever you put in the ground, it reproduces. It's cultivation. You know what you do? You cultivate. You touch somebody's life. It's just building. You do it. You know what people? Some people cultivate. They cultivate hatred, bitterness, anger. They cultivate a lot of different stuff. The people learn from one another. But there's some people that cultivate love, joy, peace, long suffering. Gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. You see, the principle of the garden is reproduction. And that's the example that I see in Capital City Baptist Church. And I've said to a lot of people around the country, you need to visit Capital City Baptist Church. And I don't know how many have done it, but why? Because you cultivate, it's contagious, it catches on. And uh, it's helped me. You'd never know the help that I've got from Capital City Baptist Church. And how many more people have been helped? That's cultivation. See, God put it right there in the book of Genesis. Say, did he touch the dirt? <laughs> he got a man, breathed into his nostril, and he became a living soul. And he made him to cultivate, put him in a garden, and said, dress it. You know what dress it means? Get it right. Cut the suckers off the corn and, you know, prune your tomatoes and do whatever, and you get it right. And once you get it right, you keep it. Keep it means you protect it, you know. So get it right and keep it right, you know. That's a wonderful thought. Anyway, did he touch the dirt? That's pretty good. Amen. Well, I want to preach to you a little bit tonight if the Lord will give me the liberty to do it. Same subject I preached this morning. I've been in a meeting Wednesday through Sunday morning through this morning down in San Antonio, a little church. But uh, uh, this morning we give the invitation. Every every person there was on the altar, except uh, one couple and I think a couple of children with them. And if they meant what they said when I gave the invitation, then we got a lot of help. And uh, if that happens here tonight, praise the Lord. But whether it happens or not. Uh, I think we can see something tonight you probably already know, maybe know as much or more about it than I do. But uh, I hope that the Lord will open our ears and our eyes and let us see. And uh, discipleship, I guess that will be the caption I'd put over my title of my sermon tonight, be discipleship. And I know Brother Adam's very strong on discipling believers, making disciples. The Bible's filled with it. 
It's just all over the place being disciples. And, uh, you know, when you, when you create, you make a disciple, you train somebody to be a disciple, you help that person. And there's a lot of people out there that need help. There's a lot of people here tonight, you probably need help. Yeah, I need help. And so yeah, I know I get help every time I come here. So tonight it was free. I said, I'm going to go up be at Capital City. But I didn't come to preach. I'm glad, you know, willing to do it. Anything the preacher said, do, I'll do it. But just being here and being in the service and being in this atmosphere, that helps me. I get help. I get a lot of help. Now, there's several passages that we could read, but let's go to Ephesians chapter 4 to start with. And in Ephesians chapter number 4, I think it's number 4, it was this morning. Yeah. <laughs> Without reading the entire passage, I just say, when the Lord ascended back to heaven, the Bible said in verse number 11, or verse number 10, He ascended... Uh, he that ascended is the same also that, or he that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, uh, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles, some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Now that's the ministry of this age. You know, the apostles and prophets, and, and uh, maybe a different time, but the evangelists for sure, some pastors, teachers for sure. But regardless in this age, what office they filled or what calling they filled, it, it had a purpose. And what was the purpose? Well, it's explained in verse number 12, 4. Here's the way that it works. God gives men gifts, put them in a ministry. They preach, they teach, they work with people. And the reason for it is for the perfecting of the saints. So when I come on this platform tonight at the invitation of the pastor, and I take it upon myself to say that I've prayed and thought about it, and I believe this is what the Lord would have me to say and do, I must do that with the idea that somebody needs help. And that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to help somebody in the preaching. What do you help them do? You help them get closer to God wherever you are, when this service is over tonight, if you didn't get something that will help you get closer to the Lord, then I had done right. It's for the perfecting of the saints. Now, perfection doesn't mean without flaw. It means you're where you ought to be for the amount of time you've been traveling. I mean, if you're a five-year-old Christian, you ought not be the same place, or you won't be the same place as a 25-year-old Christian. And so it's being where you ought to be. And uh, Hebrews said, for the time that you ought to be teachers. You have to need one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. Now here's the way it works. Keep that in mind. If you look at Matthew 28, go ye therefore and teach all nations. You know what that is? That's relaying the gospel of Christ to an unsaved world. Now there's people who lecture, but they never teach. You see, teaching is simply transferring thoughts or ideas or philosophies from my mind to somebody else's. So if we know the truth and we take a Bible and we say to an unsaved person this, 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 and this, and you step them through the gospel and what you believe, they begin to believe. You trusted Christ, you lead them to trust Christ. You've taught them. Then what's the next step? Then you baptize them. Now even though the word is not found, baptism is a local church ordinance. 
So you teach somebody and they get saved by the grace of God. Then you tell them what they ought to do. They ought to be baptized and affiliate and associate with a congregation of Bible-believing Christians. They get in a good church. Then it says teaching them to observe all. The, you, you teach them again. This is a different level of teaching. You know what that is? That's how to be a disciple. Now you can't make a disciple. We use that phrase, but you can't make a disciple. They may learn all the functions that we go through and teach them, you know, whatever. Uh, the functions of a local church, that kind of stuff. But discipleship really is a transfer of ownership. <laughs> you know, if you're a disciple, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And, and I'm sure you understand these principles. But remember this. Hubert Brooks said this in his book on personal consecration. He said, discipleship is a transfer of ownership. Now, and he made this statement, and I believe it with all of my heart. If you're not a disciple, you never was a disciple. You see, we talk about give your life to Christ. And so somebody will come forward and heal the altar and cry and pray, and, you know, and they mean it, and get up, and boy, I'm a disciple of Christ. In six months, you can't find them. You was not a disciple. You see, discipleship is not giving Christ the opportunity to prove himself in your life for five years, and then you like it or you don't like it, decide whether you're going to go any farther. It's not a 10-year segment. It's not tryout periods. You say, what is it? It's your life. It's your life. Well, what is your life right now? It's from this moment until the time you leave here. You know? And I want to say that if you're a true disciple, you're going to be in a straight betwixt two. You're going to be having to depart and have a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh, more needful for you. Discipleship says that I'm willing to be anywhere at any time for any length of time for you. It's reaching other people. It's winning people to Christ. It's getting them in the church, and it's teaching them to be disciples. You know, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. You say, you don't worry about dying. You don't want to hang around any longer. I'm ready to go. In fact, I only know one way that you can tell if you're worldly or not. And I come to Capital City Baptist Church. I see the way the ladies are dressed. They're modest. That's a wonderful thing. I see the way the men are dressed. I see the way you smile. You're happy. You're joyful. Man, that's a wonderful thing. But that doesn't mean you're not worldly. That means, you know, outwardly, you're not worldly. You say, preacher, how can I tell if I'm worldly? Only one way I know. Where would you rather be, here or in heaven? So I'd rather be here, this world. Well, you're worldly. I mean, you know, you, well, you can read that, can't you? I thought I was dying in a motel this morning. I've had these heart problems, and they'll have a flare-up, and they take me up to the emergency room, and when you go, they're going to put you in for observation. They need the insurance money and whatever, you know, they do that AKGs. <laughs> and, and really, after a while, about two or three days, they come back and say, well, your heart checks out good. They got a disease connected with it. It's old-fashioned way of saying, you got hardening in the arteries, okay? You got plaque build up, and, and uh, you get a lack of blood flow, and boy, your angina, you start having those uh, heart beating, uh, the rate goes up, and the chest pains, and you can't breathe, you know, and you think, boy, this is it. And uh, so you carry some uh, nitrogen, you know, that uh, stuff around you, put it on your tongue, 
and you put that on your tongue, it's supposed to dilate the blood vessels in your heart, the pump, uh, it starts pumping and you get good blood flow and you get okay after a while. And I had one of them this morning, I got up there in a motel and I thought, Lord, looks like this might be it. And if I'm gonna die, I'll try to get out in the hall, down the hall so they won't, you know. <laughs> <laughs> They'll be able to find me. But I thought there for a few minutes, man, I'm getting ready to go home, amen. <laughs> And uh, about an hour later, I felt okay, went down to the church, preached, and done all right, amen. And, but, you know, you know, if you live for this world, you're not a disciple. I mean, you're tied to the world. Discipleship is a transfer of ownership, and there's only one thing that counts in life, and that is the will of God, knowing Christ, making Him known, that's the only thing that matters. Now, where do you find that? Did you know the Old Testament has more principles and pictures of the New Testament church, probably, than there are definite statements about it in the New Testament? Now, go back to the book of Exodus, chapter number 3, and I can't turn to all the verses because the wife says I've got Parkinson's disease. Uh, you know, may have, I don't know, but I have a hard time turning these pages, and so I'll just tell you about it, but if you'll take the key words and check it, you'll see that it is there. But in Exodus chapter number 3, this is an amazing passage to me, but uh, having trouble reading also, my eyes water, so if I miss a word, you know it. But anyway, in Exodus chapter number 3, it said in verse 1, that Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And uh, he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. Seemed like some preachers believe that God called them to preach. Just to go around the country and show people what I can do. Let me up 40 minutes, men. I'll show you what I can do. Trying to build a monument for themselves. Having the enjoyment of, you know, on the platform, whatever. Whatever goes with it. But ministry is with a purpose. What is it? I read it in Ephesians 4. Somebody needs some help. And God sees all these people down there in Egypt. They're under heavy taskmasters. And the Lord said, I know they need help. And so in verse number 8, God said, And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land. And notice what he says, Unto a good land and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, what God says to him right there is a plan that doesn't culminate for at least 40 years. See, there was a goal, and he called Moses to be a helper in that goal. 
You know, those people needed help. That's what the ministry's about. I was looking the other day at Acts chapter number 16. And in Acts chapter number 16, the Bible said that Paul saw a vision in the night. Behold, a man of Macedonia stood and said, come over and help us. And Paul said, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them also, we immediately endeavored to go into Macedonia. You know what? There's people who needed help. And God called the Apostle Paul and he went over there. He said, did they need help? When he got there, he went to a chief colony. Uh, he went to Philippi. And you know the best thing going on in Philippi at that time was a women's prayer meeting down by the river. And he went to the women's prayer meeting. I may have said this before. I've used it as an illustration a lot. But, uh, you know, Ron Ralph, he talked about Rhoda Lee Haley. And he said Rhoda Lee Haley was the only real prayer warrior that he ever knew. And uh, he's, of course, in Carthage, Tennessee there now this year, their church, going over a million dollars, I believe, in missions. But Ron Ralph says that, that the reason that their church is doing well is because Rhoda Lee Haley was a prayer warrior. And she prayed for him, he said, for 20 years before he ever went there. And then he said he got her prayer journal and looked at it, and she had every preacher in the county in that prayer journal. And out at the side, some of them, she had a little note that said, still lost. And Brother Ralph said he wondered, really, if his name was in the journal. And said when he got to the end of it, he was the last person on the list. And she prayed for him. Now, Rhoda Lee Haley, I wouldn't be surprised if there wasn't a lady in that ladies' prayer meeting down by the river, kind of like Rhoda Lee Haley. You know what she was praying? Lord, we need help. Send somebody to help us. Send somebody to help us. What do you think those ladies in Acts chapter 16 down to the river was praying for? I know what they got. I've seen a lot of prayer requests given that I never saw an answer for. But I believe in that one I saw an answer without knowing what the request was. I believe there's at least one little lady in that group that was saying, Oh God, send us a preacher. We need a preacher, Lord. Send us a preacher. And God got Paul and sent him down there. Paul didn't know there was a prayer meeting going on. You know what he knew? He knew they needed help. Come over and help us. Come over and help us. And assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel unto them, we immediately endeavored to go into Macedonia. You say, did he help them? What is cultivation? Brother Adam preached a classic message, and I'm sure he preached all his sermons here before he preached them out. But boy, I'm telling you, the, the, the miracle of reproduction, reproduction, reproduction. Do you know what? I am reaping the benefits from that prayer meeting down by the river. You say, really? Yeah, Paul went over there and met with those women and stayed around a while, did a phenomenal work in Philippi, and then he left. He stayed away about 20 years and then he wrote him a letter. And that's the book of Philippians. And in the book of Philippians, he said in chapter number four, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. I'm living on that promise. But it wouldn't have been in there if he hadn't answered the call and went over to help him. You know what that is? That's cultivation, you see. So you know what God did? God called a man 
to go down and lead those people out of Egypt. Now, let me just go ahead and fast forward a little bit and tell you how this thing works out. If you move from Exodus 12 or Exodus 3, the call of God upon the man, the first significant thing that he does to us is teaches those people about blood redemption. And that's what a God called preacher does. He said, now before we get this going, let's make sure you got this right. Have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? Have, been, have you been redeemed by the blood? And he preaches the gospel to them and he gets them saved. Let's fast forward a little more and let's get up to Exodus 14. They're going to cross the Red Sea. But before they're crossing the Red Sea or as they're crossing the Red Sea, you know what happens? They had to be baptized. Now, I wouldn't know that was a baptism had not it been in the New Testament. But in the New Testament, it said they were baptized unto Moses under the cloud and in the sea. Well, how about that? There's a pattern in the Old Testament of a God-called man preaching blood redemption, baptizing people. And they were baptized unto Moses. You know what that means? Now, this is the leader of this congregation. And when you're baptized unto him, you're following him. You're leading him. It started with the man. And it went to salvation through the blood. And then it went to that baptism and they're a part of that congregation. And then it went over to a geographical location where they met. And they constructed the tabernacle. And I've heard people preach on the tabernacle before and all the bars and the boards and, you know, and the knops and whatever. And all the stuff that's in there has some figure to it. But if you're not careful, you'll miss the real reason why that Moses built a tabernacle. God said, see that thou build it according to the pattern that I have given thee in the mount. So he gave him all the instructions beginning in Exodus chapter number 25. And the layout, I mean, it's phenomenal the way that he gave those instructions and they built it that way. They take it down, move it, build it again, take it down, move it, build it again. Always the same way. It had one pattern. But really, the, the, the reason to build it like that is not to show your expertise. Why is it? Check the phrase. Lord said, you build a tabernacle and that can be corporate worship but you build that so they can have corporate worship and that I may dwell among them. God wanted to meet with them. You know what God wants to do here? He wants to meet with us. And if we'll build a church according to the pattern showed in the mount, man, I'm telling you, we can meet with God. And so we go through here for 40 years in that wilderness, God meeting with the people. Now, you would think that when they knew that Moses had the call of God upon his life and that he had led them out of Egypt and that he had them in the wilderness on the way to Canaan's fair and happy land, and we sang where my possessions lie, that they'd have sang all the way through, but they didn't do that. You know what they did? They murmured and they complained and they murmured and they complained and they murmured and they complained. And you know what Moses did? He realized they needed help. And he just kept showing mercy and showing mercy and showing mercy. And every once in a while he'd get so irritated with them. And every once in a while God would get irritated with them. And I think it was old Dr. Bob Jones Sr. said one time, 
Israel better be glad that God and Moses never got mad at the same time. Amen. There wouldn't have been a there wouldn't have been an Israelite. Amen. So can you see now? They get right up to the Jordan River. They're ready to cross into the Canaan land, the land uh, that's flowing with milk and honey. That's the other, that's where they were headed. All the way from Exodus 3, when God called Moses, uh, they're making a journey, and they're going to end up over there in the land that floweth with milk and honey. And even Moses said on one occasion, he said, you know, when you was in Egypt, you was a vegetarian. Okay, why? They couldn't get, grow grass to feed the cattle. Vegetarian, you've heard that before. That's nothing but an old Indian word for a bad hunter. Amen. So, <laughs> well, right. But he said, there'll come a day that I'll give you grass for your cattle that thou mayest eat and be full. Now, who's eating the grass? The cow eat the grass, so I can eat the cow. Amen. And he said, I'm going to do that for you. In fact, you know what they had to do? They had to carry water to water their crops. Uh, you could catch the phrase, I think it's in the book of Numbers maybe, but it said uh, that they watered with their feet. What do you mean they watered with their feet? They had to carry water to, you know, put a little bit on the tomatoes or whatever they had growing. They had to carry water. But the Lord said, when you get over there, I'm going to make it rain in the mountain, the valley. He said, I'm going to water your garden for you. He said, I'm going to give you cattle that your or, uh, pastures your cattle may eat. And said, you can eat meat to the full and that kind of thing. Man, I'm telling you, he's heading them for a land of plenty. That's what God called Moses to do. Now, when, when they get right up there ready to cross that Jordan River, they send a search committee out, go and look at it. And when they come back, Joshua and Caleb said, no problem. And said, grapes of Eskel, that kind of stuff, gave some evidence of it, told what it was like. And they used the phrase that it's a land flowing with milk and honey. But there was some gave an evil report. They said, giants the land, we can't take it. And you know what those Israelites did? They got a bunch together and created a committee. And they said, Moses brought us into this land to die. What we need to do is to appoint us another captain that will take us back to Egypt. Now, isn't that amazing? They said, what we need to do, we need to run this guy off. We need to fire the preacher. And we need to go start us a contemporary church. We need to go where there's more world. You know, that's what they said. You know. But... Moses got them as far as God allowed him to bring them. And then Joshua took over and took them across the Jordan River and took them into the Canaan land. Now Canaan land, they say it's a type of heaven, it's not a type of heaven. But I tell you, if I was going to give it a type, I say it'd be a type of the victorious Christian life. I say that's the ultimate. That's your discipleship. You got it over there where you and God, I mean, you got it like that, but you got it. But you know what? It took somebody with the call of God on their life. It started with a man. It started with a Moses. And he did what God called him to do. Well, I certainly know, I know enough about people to know that somebody passes on, sometimes you got to, you know, you got to give it up and you got to go on. But if there's somebody that's phenomenal in the past, you talk about them a lot. It's hard to go to Tabernacle Baptist in Greenville, South Carolina, and not mention Harold Seidler. I knew Dr. Seidler not real well, never been in his home, but I knew him. But uh, might have been one of my favorite preachers. Might have been my favorite preacher at one time. But God used Seidler. And he still got a spirit about that in Tabernacle Baptist there in Greenville. Well, I knew a man 
that made this church what it was. And I know the man that took it and just carried it on to greater things and deeper things. I know the man that will take you across the river if you'll go. He can tell you what a real disciple is. Hank Thompson, I needed help. And I needed it big time. I needed help. I didn't know I needed it, but I needed it. I regret to this day hurting so many people. You see, I tried to pastor four churches and they were disasters, all of them. We didn't end up in nothing but a fight. It was my way, the highway, and uh, not because it was right, it was because of me. And uh, boy, it was just a disaster, disaster. But one day after I started the Victor Baptist Press, just getting started 30 years ago, I suppose, I preached over at Ardmore, preached in one of those meetings, and Brother James uh, Knox, you know, they'll set up those meetings and they appoint certain scripture passages and assign them to each one. And uh, so I don't remember what he gave me, but I didn't preach it. I never did follow instructions too well. And uh, I read the passage and said a few words about it, made a couple of cross-references and preached something else. And <laughs> Brother Hank and I were there. I didn't know Hank Thompson. But anyway, he came, he preached that day and he came somehow we bonded. Now I should have done what the administrator said, what the you know, what Brother Knox said, but anyway, be that as it may. And Brother Hank invited me out to Austin. And so I came, and when I came, it was on a Wednesday night. I remember that. Some emergency had taken place. He had to go to, he had to, go to Colorado. And so I was here. He wasn't here. But I remember the service. I'd never been to the service where people were so friendly, and it seemed to be so real. It was just phenomenal. But I was here. And Brother Hank had me back several times preach. I'd been in the home. He'd been in our home. He'd come down to Florida, him, Miss Monin. Oh, I'm telling you, we just had wonderful fellowship. In fact, he came down to the church one time and preached, and he preached on embracing the cross. I later learned that was Brother Adam's sermon. His daddy went on and preached it. <laughs> but he preached on embracing the cross. Boy, what a phenomenal message. And so I'd come to Austin quite often. Hank Thompson taught me how to love and treat people. Hospitality is the only thing in the Bible that it said you're to be given to. You're not to be given to much wine, filthy lucre, a lot of different things. But you are to be given to hospitality. And he taught me what that meant. Hank Thompson will suffer in order to be good to you. I was in Arizona preaching. He was out in Las Cruces trying to get those treatments that that's the only place I believe that he could get them. So I got a rental car and drove over to Las Cruces and called Brother Hank and he knew I was coming. So he said, you're staying with us. He told everybody that, I guess. I guess, I don't know where he slept everybody, but said, you're staying with us. Well, I got down and got a room. I didn't want to burden him like that. And I called him. I was set up. So, oh, he come and picked me up at the motel and took me over. And him and Sister Mona had that apartment. They had dinner for us. And I think Brother Simpson and his wife, they were there. And after the, after the meal that evening, he had to do what he always did. He had to take us out, show us the town, show us around, whatever. The next morning, he had to come by and pick me up for breakfast, take me to an old used bookstore down there and walk around. And I noticed Brother Hank walking around in that building. He's so weak, he was a sick man. 
but yet he wanted to be good to the preacher. He wanted to do something for you. I noticed you couldn't say anything about you need something. The first thing you know, he'd be buying it for you. He'd be doing something. He loved people. He knew how to be hospitable. He knew how to treat people right without being a compromiser, cutting his standards. You say, what about that? He was cultivating. And he just kept cultivating and cultivating and cultivating. I needed a changed life. And Hank Thompson did it. And this church did it. Well, when you go down through the down through the pattern of this thing, and you get down to the end, and Joshua, he took them across the Red Sea. Now, here's where it works. Moses, my servant, is dead, it says in Joshua chapter number one. But I'm told the Hebrew spelling for Jesus is Joshua. And so Joshua took them across and took them into the victorious Christian living. So here's what you've got. You've got a God-called man. You've got blood and redemption. You've got scriptural baptism. You've got a congregation and a physical place to meet where the Lord will meet with you. And that's what you've got. Now, within that concept, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and get on the other side of the Jordan and live in victory, you can. But you say, what do you have to do? Well, in, in studying those few chapters in the book of Genesis and all the philosophies that are there, it's phenomenal as to what's there. You know, the Lord put that garden in Eden, planted the garden, put the man, the woman, to dress it. And in the midst of that garden, there was a tree. It was the tree of life, where if a man eat of, he'd never die. He'd live forever. And nobody, no commentator that I've ever read, no preacher that I've ever talked to, ever gave me a logical answer as to why Adam never ate from the fruit of the tree of life, but he didn't. He didn't eat from the fruit of the tree of life. Now you say, well, what happened? Well, I'll tell you what happened, but I'll tell you first of all, that there's nothing good said about Adam in the Bible. But the philosophy is, and I don't think it's a right philosophy, that when Adam ate the fruit, he was showing that he loved his wife so well, and I've preached that as a type, but I'm careful with it now but that he was showing his wife how much he loved her. And he was willing to eat that fruit in order to be like her and to show that he loved her. And I don't believe that's right. But in that process, we've got a generation of Christians today that like Adam. Adam was a good guy. Nothing good said about him. Why do we think he's a good guy? I'll tell you why. We think he's a good guy because he lives in me. And I like me. He lives in every one of us. Outside of Christ, we're Adam's representative. Now, Adam had Eve for a wife. And let me drop this bomb. You know what Eve was? 
Eve was a domineering woman under satanic influence. I mean, Satan came and said, he put it in her mind to eat the fruit, the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, and gave also under a husband, and he did eat. You know what will bring a man down? Same thing brought Adam down. A domineering woman under satanic influence. She'll destroy him. And that's what she did with Adam. Now, they sewed them fig leaves together and made aprons. She domineered. You see, that's unisex. Men and women are not supposed to wear the same clothes. But they did. They both wore fig leaf aprons. And with those fig leaf aprons, you know what that did? And they went and hid. You know what that did? That revealed their estimation of God. You know what they thought? They thought you could hide from God. He couldn't find you. You don't know much about him. They thought God couldn't see through those fig leaf aprons. You don't know much about him. We're talking about deity, buddy. We're talking about God that knows all about you. What you've done. I used to hear Ralph Sexton, senior preacher, and our God's a God of knowledge. And he said, oh, he knows everything you've done. He knows everything you haven't done. He knows everything you're capable of doing and would do if the opportunity came. He knows everything you've said. He knows everything you have not said. He knows every word in your tongue. Oh, Lord, that's what the Bible says. He knows every word that you're capable of saying. He knows every thought you've had. He knows every thought you haven't had that you're capable of. God is a God of knowledge. And I want to repeat what Brother Sexton has said. Oh, what a God we have that knows me. He knows all about me. And he knows what I would do under any circumstance. And he still loves me. What a God we have. But Adam and Eve didn't manifest that kind of an attitude toward God. And so the Lord clothed them with coats of skins. And again, I've heard it. And I'm just a country boy. I don't have a lot of, well, I don't have any formal education. So I don't know. Maybe I'd learn Greek or Hebrew. I may be all wet here on this stuff, but I'm not going to learn Greek or Hebrew. <laughs> I believe what I'm preaching to you tonight is the Bible. <laughs> God made the coats of skins. And so the commentators are right and say, well, there had to be bloodshed. And that is their redemption. Pardon me. Their redemption was not in those coats of skins. Their redemption was in the fruit on a tree in the garden. And God gave them opportunity to eat it and they turned it down. They didn't take it. And God kicked them out. He put them out. Now ladies and gentlemen, this is a serious hour. But when you read Proverbs chapter 1, God said, I called, and you wouldn't answer. Now you'll call, and I won't answer. And God's not on your string like a puppet. He's not on my string. And I don't call God, He calls me. And God don't have to respond to me. He does in grace and mercy. And I have an opportunity to respond to Him and I don't have to. But it's get out, get away from me. I don't want nothing to do with you. And that's what he did with Adam. Why? 
lest he should enter back in and eat from the fruit and live forever. Now, when God called Moses, he said, here am I. And the Lord said, I want you to go down, take those people out of Egypt, take them across that Red Sea, get them washed in the blood, get them baptized, get them through that wilderness, and get them up to that Canaan land where they can be victorious. So God said to a man like a Hank Thompson, a lot of people need help. And he said, here am I. And that history of this church is one of cultivation. Now look at how you're doing and look at what you're doing. It's wonderful. I love to hear Brother Adam preach. But let me tell you what happens when you become a disciple. You see, I'm a disciple. You say, what do you mean? My life. Not worth much, but my life, my entire life. My wife, my children. So what do you think about it the morning you woke up? I think about the Lord. I get up first thing I do in the morning. I read some Bible. And uh, I pray a while. And then you know what I do? All day long, I'm meditating. I'm thinking. What are you thinking about? I think about them verses that I'm preaching tonight. I'm thinking about those truths that I read this morning. And you know what God does? He gives me that truth, and then he opens up another one that's linked to it. And then I'll get another one that's linked to it. And I got to thinking just the last few days, did he touch the dirt? We're too proud of ourselves. We're just dirt. God touched the dirt. And I thought about Ruth. I thought about the near kinsman. I thought about the near kinsman. You know, when God gives opportunity, you better take it then. Right then. He may not call again. And so you got that story in the book of Ruth. The Limelech, two boys, two boys died. Ruth and Orpah, the two girls. And Naomi goes back to Bethlehem, Judah. Ruth goes with her. Orpah returned to her gods in Moab. She stayed with the pagans. She didn't want to go, so she didn't go. And so Ruth falls into that mighty man of wealth's field, and uh, courtship strikes up, and he's going to marry her, and he gets the land that's hers. But there's a near kinsman. There's another one. He had two kinsmen that were qualified to marry her. And so Boaz, he said, there's another kinsman that's nearer than I. And uh, he'll have to have first choice. So in the morning, Boaz sat into the gate, and that near kinsman came by, hold such and one, sit down here. He sat down, he told him. Okay, you've got this girl, Ruth, and she's in the family. And uh, you have the opportunity to take her and take that piece of land. Now, if you take the land, you got to take the, you got to take the woman. And he said, "No, I want the land, but I don't want the lady." You know what Ruth knew in his eyes? She's worth less than dirt. Wanted the land, but didn't want the lady. By the way. Did you know that entire scenario shows how 
that one person who misses the opportunity to be what God has for them affects somebody else. Are there any more girls qualified to be the wife of that other near kinsman? Yeah, there's one. But she stayed in Moab. That action on that girl, Orpah, stayed in Moab. He'd kept that near kinsman from having a wife. Serious business, isn't it? God calls you because somebody needs help. Okay. Now, if you become a disciple of Jesus Christ, you're living in the land with milk and honey. And you know what it says? I'll do this, and I'll do this, and I'll do this. Boy, the book of Deuteronomy is filled with it. And I'll do this, and I'll do this. And it's just the blessings of God falling all the time. And I believe that if you're not a disciple and you have no ambitions and no desire to be a disciple, I don't even believe you get your prayers answered. I don't believe you, I don't believe you can hear the voice of God. You may be a born-again Christian, but you may not have that direct connection with God that you can go to Him and talk to Him. I mean, I'm amazed sometimes in the mornings early, 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, and I can't hardly believe this, that the God of the universe, when deity touched the dirt and changed me, that I can have a conversation with the God of heaven. Let me give you one illustration and I'll stop. You know, Brother Ted Mullins, you probably know Brother Ted. Ted and Lynn Mullins went to Papua New Guinea's missionaries, I don't know, 30 years ago. They stayed 28 years. Lynn's now wrote two volumes of their journeys in Papua New Guinea. We printed both of them. The first one was the first seven years. The second one was the second seven, second seven years. And she plans to uh, write four volumes, seven years, so in the seven-year segments of their ministries over there. Ted was, looked like maybe in his executive position, looking, working, making good money, General Motors. Lynn worked and had an office job, making a lot of money. Ted had just bought her a 1957 Chevrolet and built in their dream home and all that stuff. And Ted got saved. God called him, preached, called him in the mission field. And when he prayed about it, the Lord laid Papua New Guinea on his heart. And so when he told his mother they were going to New Guinea as missionaries, she wept and cried and said, Ted, I could be dead. You would even know it. Never get to see the grandchildren. Never get to, you know. He said, well, this is what God called us to do. They gave up the house and the cars and everything they had and moved, I mean, to really remote regions in New Guinea. Ted said, little did he know that uh, 17 years later, his mother would be dead and buried three weeks before he even knew about it. But he was a disciple. And when you become a disciple, you know, when, when you study the Old Testament, Slavery is a good thing to study. It's a servant. That's what they were. And the Old Testament's filled with it. And you know what happens when there was a servant and he'd done his seven years. Another man had bought him. And he'd been treated so well as a servant. He was set free. He said, I don't want to go free. 
I love my master. I love my wife. I love my children. Put his ear against that tree and they bored a hole in it and that meant I'm a servant forever. That's discipleship. And so Ted was a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Totally, 100%. And Lynn said uh, one day Ted had to walk across the mountain to preach from Eden for three or four days. And they had a generator, a diesel generator in the backyard. And they got some men there that they'd won to Christ to surround the house and watch over it so Lynn would be safe. Lynn went out to crank that generator and there was a little valve, a fuel valve, and she turned it and it broke. The thing broke off in her hand. So I don't know. So she didn't have electricity for those three or four days. And then Ted came back. And when Ted came back, he told her what had happened. So he's out there working on that generator trying to figure out how to get something fixed to get fuel so that it would run. And the mail came. And uh, she got a care package. Her mother always sent care packages from Tennessee. And they knew that they was always breaking down an automobile or something. They'd send them little trinkets and screws and nuts and a crescent wrench and a lot of stuff, you know. And Lynn said she opened that box, and in the bottom of it was another little box. She opened it up, and there was some screws and bolts and nuts. There's a little wing nut. She thought it can't be. And she took that wing nut in her hand and walked back there to that generator and held it out. And Ted looked at it, and he said it was the exact thing he needed to put on that generator. And they looked on the box at the mailing date of that box. They'd mailed it six months before. You know, he said, what is that? That's communion with God. You're his responsibility. He takes care of you. He meets your need. He watches over you. I mean, uh, you see me? I don't have a need for a thing. Nothing. Why? I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, let me ask you a question tonight. Do you want to be a disciple of Christ. Now, the pastor may assign somebody to sit with you and teach you and train you, or maybe you already know that stuff. Maybe you had a little reservation about giving your entire life to Jesus Christ. I don't know your station tonight, but I know one thing, that if in your heart you want to be a real disciple of Jesus Christ and be spent in helping somebody else, I'd like for you to come kneel around this altar tonight and I'm going to pray. God, give us disciples. Real, true disciples. Maybe you're already a disciple, but you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Let's stand together, heads bowed, eyes closed.